All right, if you uh, have been able to follow along on our journey so far, we are working through the gospel, uh, the letter of Peter. Uh, and so we are finally up to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, it's been quite a journey that Peter is taking us on so far, if you've been able to track along with us. If not, uh, really, the letter begins with the first 12 verses, just this kind of super positive affirmation of what it means for us to be Christians. Uh, it's all about the fact that we are elected by God, saved through grace, adopted into His family, one to an eternal, undefiled home where we will see Christ and be with Christ forevermore. And then having laid that foundation of grace, which is so important, we must always do that, Peter then pivoted to the kind of the works, the outflowing of grace. And he talked about that we should be holy as God is holy. He talked about the fact that in our holiness, we will find our unity in our constant love for one another. So he laid a foundation that you are saved by grace and grace alone, and then said, but if you are saved by grace, it will change you and your life will look different and that will result in our unity and our love. And then finally, last week, at the start of chapter 2, Peter then shifted to saying, these are some of the obstacles to that love. Here are some of the things which will come as a wedge to that love. And if you remember, we looked at things like hypocrisy and uh, malice and deceit, etc., uh, etc. Et so we looked at things which will break unity and will destroy the love that we should have in our church. And these things should be taken seriously. Not only do they cause division, but each one of these practices is a rejection of Christ our head. Because each one of those things is, is against Christ. Deceit is against Christ because He is truth. Right? You get what I'm saying? So, so all of those things we should find abhorrent in the church. We should strive against in the church. And that's what Peter wanted us to real, realize. So here we are this morning, and we're going to shift gear slightly again. And really, I would say this is a wonderful triumphant declaration again of who we are in the church. Once again, I put it to you, church, that if you grasp truly the sheer magnitude and scope and grandeur of what these verses are saying about us, the sheer incredible nature of what God has done for us, then that alone should put to death our petty squabbles. Really, seriously. What is the fact that, you know, someone talked behind my back compared to the grandeur of Christ? Right, I'll just get over it, okay? Like, seriously, if we, if we can see the grandeur of Christ, then it puts everything else into its proper place. Okay, so that's really where we're at together this morning. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis must be one of the most incredible Christian minds of the last couple hundred years, a brilliant Christian writer. Yes, he wrote the Narnia series, and the Narnia series are fantastic, so you might be familiar with those. Uh, but on top of that, he wrote some of the most profound Christian theology that you can ever read. Now, this quote I love, and he wrote this. 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You get what he's saying? We fool around with the pleasures of this earth because we can't lift our gaze to the infinite pleasures that God is offering. So we're like a child playing with mud pies when we've been offered a holiday at the sea, okay? So I want us to think about that this morning, that illustration. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at 4 to 10. 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, verse 4. As you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone. Now that's the point. Peter wants to make. Back in verse 3, we saw that he is the Lord, he is Yahweh, and now Peter says that Yahweh, the Lord, is Jesus. Now, Peter, through this whole passage, just constantly references the Old Testament, and he's doing so to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Lord. And so there's just these constant references. Now, some of your Bibles might have a whole lot of bolded lines. Anyone got that in the, this passage? A lot of bolded lines, yep, some people are saying. Some might have it italicized. All of that is Old Testament references, right? It's just chock full of Old Testament references, this section. So Peter just wants us to understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, Calling him a living stone is a reference, of course, to Jesus' resurrection. He's alive, isn't he? Amen? He defeated sin and death. He is the living stone. He's not a dead stone. 
And then Peter references Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, Jesus is the cornerstone. All, the, all of the new temple of God, the new covenant, is being built on the living cornerstone of Jesus. Okay, He is one, a people for himself. So Jesus was rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God is what our verse is saying. Still the same today, isn't it? People reject Jesus. People reject his offer of salvation. No matter how many reject him, he still sits at the right hand of the Father. He's still eternally glorified and honored by God. That's Peter's point. You can't change that fact. Doesn't matter what's going on in the world politically. Doesn't matter what's going on in our culture. No one can change the fact that he sits at the right hand of the Father. He's eternally glorified and honored by the Father. Right? He's the living cornerstone. That's a fact. You can't change it. All right? Peter wants us to own that. So I think the first lesson in our passage in regarding to making less mud pies is remembering who Jesus really is. Okay? We've got to fix our gaze that he is the risen and glorified Lord with eyes like blazing fire, and his words are sharper than a two-edged sword, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is who he is. We've got to get that in our psyche. Keep our gaze lifted up to who Christ is, and it puts the world in its proper place. Nothing can stand against Christ our Savior. Nothing. Verse 5, we learn, according to our passage, that we too are living stones. So he is the living stone, and then in verse 5 we learn that we too are living stones. Why are we called living stones? Because we are included in Christ. We have life in his name, in and through him. He defeated sin and death on the cross. Not only did he defeat sin and death, but he promised when we repent and put our faith in Christ, he gives us his righteousness. So that when we put our faith in Christ, when we repent, then God the Father sees our sin paid through the sacrifice of Christ and sees the righteousness of Christ applied to you. You have the righteousness of the living stone. Man, praise God, hey? Right? The work of Christ is applied to you. Can you, you know who you are, right? You know who you are. You know how much sin's really in your life. You're never going to tell everyone here about it, but you know who you are. You know your incorrect motives. You know those thoughts you have which you would be horrified for other people to see. Do you know what? Christ doesn't even, the Father doesn't even see those. Because they were paid for by Jesus and his righteousness was given to you. The, your debt has been paid. That includes the things you think. And you've been given the righteousness of Christ when you put your faith in him. In Christ, you are perfected forevermore in the eyes of the Father. That's the good news, church. That's our status before God right now when we put our trust in Christ. You are a living stone and you've been brought to life through 
the death and resurrection of Jesus. Remember our context. Peter is writing to the church which is facing growing persecution. It's not the major church-wide persecution, which you've probably heard about under Nero or Caligula or any of these other Roman emperors. It's a growing persecution of a predominantly Gentile church. It was probably a persecution maybe by some local Roman governors and possibly by the Jewish uh, uh, Pharisees, etc., who were against the people coming to faith. So we've got a growing persecution not so different from ourselves in this country. Right? We have a growing persecution. We can't compare ourselves to persecution that's going on around the world, can we? But we have a growing sense of, of a, an, a, a, against Christianity in this country. Right? So we've got this growing Christianity. So what's Peter doing? He's driving at them the good news, not pessimism. Peter's message is not there's persecution growing, Everyone run and hide while I share you boring stories about how it used to be so good. No, that's not Peter's message. Peter wasn't saying to the whole church, that's who you need to be, you just got to sit around and sulk because society's changing and it's not what it once was. No, he's saying, celebrate the goodness of Jesus that has won you your place in heaven forevermore, regardless of what's going on in the community. Amen. And that's the good news that Peter wants you to own. Church, the cup's not half empty. It's always full because we're full of Christ. We're full of the Spirit. We're saved forevermore. We have good news to proclaim. Now, I'm not saying we don't go through hard times, and some of them are genuinely tough, but none of those things can change our status as children of God. Right? That's a hope that cannot be taken from us. Cling to it. Let it fuel you for mission instead of trying to hide away from the world. So what do you do with a living stone? We've all become living stones. What do you do with it? You build with it. You build a spiritual house, according to our passage. You build a temple. And according to our passage, you build a holy priesthood out of the same stone to offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, this is really cool. Peter says, you are the temple and the priest. That's pretty funky, isn't it? Now, in the Old Testament, that made no sense. You are the temple and the priest. But Peter is saying, now, because of Christ, you are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are where God resides. You are born again. So that's you. You're the temple. However, you have to fulfill, once you're saved, the good works that have been prepared in advance for you to do. So you are the dwelling place of God, and your life is given over to perform the sacrifices of a priest on God's behalf. So you are the temple and the priest. So what are the good works prepared in advance for you to do? If you're the temple and the priest, what are the sacrifices that you have to make? Well, look, I'm not about to give you every possible way that you might have to serve Jesus. There's a lot of options and opportunities here, and I think this is very broad. I think it's just saying, as the temple of God, as the dwelling place of God, you're going to live for Him. You're going you're to live a holy life for Him. 
However, Peter does give us the specifics. In verse 9, he says that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus suffered and died for you, bore the wrath of the Father against sin for you, endured the shame of the cross, gives you eternal life, grace, adoption, and says, now one of the sacrifices I want from you is to declare my praises. That's not a big ask, is it, church? Right? That we would sing, that we would declare the praises of the one who paid the penalty of your sin and brought you life. This is what Christ is asking of you. Imagine getting offered a job, okay? When you think about this for a second, imagine getting offered a job, the pay is 400% over the award, okay? It's a, it's a solid start, isn't it? 400% over the award. Everyone you work with is a close family member that you love, right? I'm not saying one of those weird cousins which you struggle to love. I mean a close family member that you love is everyone you work with, right? So you've got 400% above ward. Everyone you work with is a close family you love. Your boss, your employer, has sacrificed everything of his own, his own time, his own energy, his own health, so that your every day is made better on your job. And then you get your role description. And your role description says, tell other people what a good place this is to work. You reckon you'd struggle with that? Right? Think about what I've just said, 400% above award, working with people you love, the boss has actually done all the work, so every day for you is a joy, and then your job description says, tell other people this is a great place to work. Right? Who's going to do that? Everyone. Now, the reality is, oh, Josiah's put his hand up, Russ, I think he's asking for those conditions, mate, sorry about that. Um, no, uh, look, the reality is, this falls short, doesn't it? Because Christ has done so much more than that. I mean, he's given us eternal life, he's paid our debt, he's done it all. He's brought us together with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and he's already said our love for one another should be constant, it should be unifying in Christ. So he's already talked about the love and unity that we should have. So he's called us together into the family of God, he's paid the penalty of our sin, he's given his righteousness, he's promised us an eternal undefiled home, and then he says, oh by the way, I want you to make sacrifices, and that would be, tell people the good news. Come on, church. Be excited. Like, lift your eyes from the mud pies to the holiday at the sea. That's what he's talking about here. Like, focus on what Christ has done and let that bring you joy. Seriously, when we sing songs together here, it should lift the roof off. Because we are singing our praises to Christ and what he has done. Verse 6 of our passage. Peter here quotes from Isaiah 28, 16. The context of this is Ephraim's unfaithfulness of not trusting God and instead trusting in foreign powers. And the context of the passage is if you trust God, 
you will not be put to shame. So Peter is saying, Jesus is the honored cornerstone and the one who puts their faith in him will never be put to shame. Again, remember, Peter is writing to a persecuted church. This is a promise to them and to you. The world can mock us, laugh at us, ridicule us, attack us, but we will never be put to shame. Because on that great day, when all will be revealed, we will be revealed as the chosen children of God. We cannot be put to shame. Again, lift your eyes from the trouble to what we have in Christ and let that fuel you to declare and tell of his good news. Right? That's what Peter's trying to drive to us here. Don't sit around like a sad sack of potatoes all the time. Oh, the world's so bad. Blah, blah, blah. Jesus is so good. Follow him. Tell people of how good he is. Right? That's the gospel. Now we hit the controversial bit of the passage this morning. Uh, and as you know, we don't mind a little bit of controversy when we're preaching here in this church. So uh, this should be a bit of fun. Some of you are going to love it. Some of you are going to hate it. Uh, but... Let me make two quick points before we look at it. Firstly, praise God that no matter who is doing the preaching here on a Sunday morning, we don't skip the difficult verses. And that's a good thing. So yes, we hit controversy, but we should be prepared to wrestle with it, shouldn't we? Because it's the Word of God. Amen? So we hit it. And then secondly, what I want to say is this. Have an open mind to wrestling through the difficult bits of Scripture. There are some things we're set on, aren't there? Death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, rose on the third day, proving he conquered sin and death. We now have life in his name forever. Right? There are things we cannot and will not ever change our mind on. But there are a lot of other issues in the Scripture which we can wrestle with, which we can change and we don't all actually have to sit in the same place, but we should come to church being willing to go, oh, that's difficult. Let me wrestle with that. Not that's difficult, so I hate everyone, right? No, it's difficult. Let me wrestle with that, okay? So that's where we're going to get to this morning. All right, let me refresh verses 7 and 8. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word they were destined for this. First part, great. Hopefully, honor sounds pretty good. Honor for those who come to Christ. But for those who don't accept Jesus, those who will not bend their knee and call him Lord, they will trip on the cornerstone. Because there is no other way to be saved than through Jesus Christ. Why do they stumble? Why are they not saved? And this is where it begins to get tricky. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. 
So God has appointed that they will both disobey and stumble without God being morally responsible for the sin of those unbelievers. There's a tricky statement if you actually think about it. God has appointed that they will stumble and fall without being morally responsible for them stumbling and falling. Everyone having a bit of fun with that? It should be. That's tricky, isn't it? This means the reason people stumble on Jesus, the reason they disobey the Word, is not something accidental, like we might trip on something. It is active disobedience. It is a rebellion against the Lordship of Christ because they will not have any Lord other than themselves. So all sinners are morally culpable for their sin. They refuse to accept the Lordship of Christ and will only acknowledge themselves as Lord. And then Peter says, which they were also destined for. God has not only appointed that those who disobey the word would stumble and fall, he's determined that they would disbelieve, stumble and fall. Now, like I said, this is tricky. But it is biblical and something that we have to wrestle with. The modern church doesn't like this. We just want everything to be so nice and happy all the time. But the Bible gives us this calamity all the time, this, this wrestle, right? So listen to this. This is Lamentations 3.38. Lamentations 3.38. Do not both adversity and good come from the mouth of the Most High. Don't adversity and good come from the mouth of the Most High. Isaiah 45.7. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. I am the Lord who does all these things. Difficult, isn't it? Saying that's true, because God says it. The biblical writers never exempt humans from their responsibility, though. So they say God ordains all things and people are responsible as well. For instance, Peter in Acts chapter 2, he preaches that first sermon on Pentecost and he stands up and he says to all of the Jews who were gathered there and he says, you have killed the Messiah, you are responsible for his blood and God ordained that Jesus would die. You feel the tension? Yes? Getting a few sort of quiet nods. Good, I want you to feel the tension. They were not coerced into killing Jesus. It was their desire to put to death the threat to their authority, and at the same time, it was ordained that Jesus would die. He's now saying the same thing Peter is saying to those who trip on the cornerstone of Christ. It is their will and desire to reject Christ for their own lordship, and yet, says Peter, they were destined to do this. I want you to know this, church. Anyone who claims to be able to explain this perfectly is lying. Right? The, the pure, straight logic of this is beyond us. 
right? God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. How does it perfectly fit together, divine sovereignty and human responsibility? I can't tell you. Nobody can. But you must own that both are true because they're both biblical. Okay, they are both true. Now, you know, you can fall on the classic Arminianism, Calvinism debate one side or another, but even that won't answer all the questions on how this works. There is no pure, definitive answer. Okay, has everyone felt the tension of what I'm saying? Yes? Sometimes I wish you were all Pentecostal and you just like yell out at me or something, I don't know. Right, because I just want you to feel the weight of that so that then we can together put it aside and say this, what is the holiday at the sea here compared to the mud pie? What is Peter driving at? If his theme here is to lift our eyes to Christ that result in Christ's praises forevermore, what is he driving at here that should lift our gaze? And of course, it's really straightforward what he's um, saying. He's saying this, despite the persecution you are suffering, despite those who are rejecting Jesus and persecuting the church, God is in control. That is his point. There is your holiday at the sea. Regardless of what is happening in the world, regardless of all of these issues that are going on, God is in control. Amen? That is Peter's point. So, you know, when we're sitting down over coffee together, anyone who wants to, I will debate theology with you all day long. I really enjoy it. Some people hate it. I love it. And we could sit there and we could argue the ins and outs of all of this, and that is actually fine. That's an okay thing to do. Grow in your knowledge of God, says the Word. But it's a pointless and stupid task if our goal is not to grow closer to God and rejoice in His goodness. Right? That's the goal. And what Peter is saying to us is, yeah, look, you might not get it all. You might not understand how these things fit together perfectly, but know this, even in suffering, even in things you don't understand, God is in control. Rest there. Rejoice there. And he's saying that to a persecuted church. Verses 9 to 10. Last two verses. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, starting with, but, but you are a chosen race, Peter is directly contrasting the appointment of those to destruction with the election of God's chosen to life, all right? But you have been chosen, that's what he's saying. Now, in this whole section, he's quoting again from the Old Testament. All of these verses which applied to Israel, Peter is now applying to the church, So he's taking all of these references to Israel and he's now applying them to the church. For starters, the royal priesthood, it's found in a number of places. But in Exodus 19.6 says this, 
and you will be my kingdom of priests, right? Royal priesthood. Kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Okay, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. And that was said to Israel, and Peter is now saying, that's the church. It's fulfilled in the church. Now, ultimately, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, displaying God's glory, to which they largely failed. But now Peter is saying in the new covenant, the royal priesthood is you, the church, declaring his praises to the nations. Also in that Exodus reference, we see the term a holy nation. It means set apart, uh, the, the otherness. They were to be a nation of people who were other than the other nations. They were to look different, live different as they worshipped God. And Peter is saying that the holy nation, the set apart nation is now the church. You are the ones who have been set apart as the people of of God. All of these references in the Old Testament covenant have now been fulfilled in the New Testament church, is what Peter is saying. Just pause for one quick second and think how amazing that is. Do you remember how kind of hostile the Jews were to the Gentiles? Now we've got Peter writing to a Gentile church and saying, by the way, guys, all of these Old Testament promises of being the people of God are now you. That's amazing, isn't it? The change that God has wrought in Peter's heart. The privileges belonging to Israel now belong to the church of Jesus Christ. The church fulfills all of these promises that were made. And the purpose of the people of God is now explained as we've looked at. God chose them to be his people established them as royal priesthood, appointed them as a holy nation, his special people that they would declare the praises of him who called them out of darkness and into light. This is the purpose, that you will glorify God. You will declare his goodness and his praises. Remember what I said, the church was Gentile that Peter was writing to, they were once in darkness, now they're in the light. Not that they deserved it, not that they achieved it. God has done it, and why has he done it? So that they will declare his goodness and praises forevermore. In closing, here's what I'd like you to do. I'm actually just going to read verses 9 and 10 again. That's all I'm going to do, but I don't want you to follow along. Now, you're not going to hear me say that in church very often. I want you to shut your Bibles, Okay? Because I've already read it, so you know I'm not making it up. And the reason I want you to do that is I just want you to listen. Shut your eyes if you need to. Listen to what God is saying about you. Because that's, this passage is addressed to the church. So genuinely, genuinely, if we all lift our eyes from the mud pies of this earth to the, the holiday at the sea, to focusing in on Christ... Listen to what he's saying to you. Don't, don't let it go by as just another passage. I've been doing this for years. Listen, okay? Everyone, listen. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession 
so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen. That's what it means to be the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, there's nothing wrong with following the the news or following politics or studying the latest anthropological underpinnings that are going on in our culture, whatever it is we might be interested in. But Lord, we have to keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we can't give in to fear. Lord, you've given us these promises so that we'd lift our eyes to you, the certainty of our salvation. Lord, regardless of what goes on in this world, we would declare your praises, both here on a Sunday morning and, Lord, from Monday to Saturday, out in the world, we would declare your praises. Lord, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people set apart for your glory. May we always declare your praises. Lord, strengthen us. Give us the courage and boldness, we pray. In your precious name, amen.